once again to Center Left Radio, the progressive voice of hope, politics, and jazz. My name is Richard Gazer, and as always, I am pleased and I'm honored to be your host and your commentator for another of our commentary shows. One of the shows that we have up on air, online, 24-7 here at www.centerlefttalkradio.com centerlefttalkradio.com. Of course, if you're listening to us, you're listening to us via one of two methodologies, as it were, uh, more practically as the result of hitting one of two, not both, one of two links. Uh, The first link at that address, that is our homepage, gives you access to our podcast feed. And this would be the first show at the top of that podcast feed. Certainly uh, on the day that you're listening to it right now, that today being the 8th of February and probably for the next day or two afterwards. The other option for listening to this show is via the second link on our homepage, and that is the Radio Loop link, uh, essentially a version of this show running on a separate computer here in the studio, running in a constant, never-ending loop. And what you do is you hit that second link, the radio loop link, pick up the show at whatever point it happens to be, and, and kind of get the, the same uh, feeling you used to get sitting in your uh, 64 Chevy Impala uh, and flicking on the AM radio with a loud click and listening to, oh, I guess, maybe Murray the K or Wolfman Jack or somebody like that, uh, maybe Don Imus. Uh, well, no, Don was Don on the air in 64? Maybe not. I don't know. At any event, listening to uh, some great radio, picking up a show wherever it happened to be, picking up a talk show wherever in the cycle it was, getting interested, staying with it. But if you got really interested, you suddenly realize that you missed the front end. Well, we've, uh, we've solved that issue because when the show running in the radio loop ends, it goes right back and starts from the beginning uh, in a matter of, I don't know, two or three seconds. Starts all over again. So just stay with us here on Center Left Radio. We're pleased to have you listening either way you choose, as a podcast or as part of our radio loop. Uh, It would be impossible not to make some reference to the uh, State of the Union address uh, from last night. And I, 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 as these things tend to be, uh, I I don't know, you don't expect much. You know it's going to be, uh, it's, it's the opportunity, it's the annual opportunity for the president to lay out uh, both a uh, sort of a, a scorecard, a report card, a self-issued report card, and making it as positive as possible for the achievements of the past year to basically give an image of what it is going to happen going forward and, uh, and, and do the best you can. And the other side, whoever the other side is at that particular cycle, that particular year, uh, comes back with a rebuttal of sorts and, and that's pretty much the standard stuff. Now, we are in a period of time which basically uh, is about as, as uh, where we are in, in, in is about a, uh, a, 
an, an aggressive stage politically in this country as I can remember in my lifetime. And to, to say that, the, that, the, that there is a lack of cooperation between the parties is, is basically to understate dramatically what's going on. Uh, I, I found that the president last night, and I, and I, and I saw most of this, I had, uh, well, I, I did see pretty much all of it, and I'll probably go, look, go back and look at this later on. I'll just find a, a, a video of it just to refresh my memory on everything. I thought, I thought he handled this well. I thought that uh, I was, I, I, I want to say I was amazed by just the damned bad manners that were being exhibited by some of the Republicans in the audience. But uh, that, that no longer is a remarkable uh, behavior. Or it, it's just no longer... Well, Marjorie Taylor Greene is Marjorie Taylor Greene. She was shouting out... If you recall, uh, there was an Obama State of the Union address, and some Republican uh, got up and began yelling during the speech, you lie, you lie, you lie. Do you remember this? This is, this is during the uh, one year in the Obama administration. And I remember everybody being absolutely shocked, shocked. It, I, I, I'd never seen anyone do this sort of thing during a State of the Union. Obama seemed to have been a little taken back when it happened. But, uh, but in, in this instance, uh, it was an odd sort of a way that this played out. Uh, it was clear from the look on Kevin McCarthy's face that he was trying somehow, if, if, if he could have done like a little hand under the neck, you know, cut it, cut it sort of thing, he, he held back doing that. That's what he would have done to Marjorie Taylor Greene, who was standing there, sitting there in white fur uh, among her colleagues about his odd an outfit for a State of the Union address. I, I imagine in her mind it might have had some significance. I'm not sure what, but managed to find an opportunity to scream out, you lied, you, you liar, liar, or words to that effect, and the camera beat it in on her, and her, her whole conference is, you're getting all this kind of negative kind of sounds and sort of animalistic uh, uh, growlings and everything else. And Joe Biden handled it remarkably. In fact, and this is it, it, just drawing the comparison between this and Barack Obama at that State of the Union address where someone yelled out, you lie to him, uh, he, uh, Biden kind of smiled. And he kind of leaned on the podium and basically, and I think, by the way, the reaction, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene's, well, it could be to anything. She's not, you know, she's Marjorie Taylor Greene. What can I say? She's, she's a firebrand. Without, without yelling and screaming, she, she probably immediately turned around, did a fundraiser. She probably made a million dollars off of doing that. But just basically gave people another reason not to vote for Republicans generally. The, the more rational, reactive people in the country seeing that kind of performance, 
basically realize that this is not what they're looking for. Most Americans don't want that antipathy. They don't want that constant uh, state of, of, of battle that's going on. Uh, the, again, the, the topic, as I recall, that, that set Marjorie Taylor Greene off, well, what she was waiting for, she finally got something that she could work with, happened to be uh, Biden's reference to the fact that some Republicans, and he said some Republicans, not all, basically uh, are looking to cut out Medicare and Medicaid. Now, there happened to be the head of the RNC uh, basically had put that out there. It was, it was a major uh, public position that they had out there. There was a lot of pushback from the rank and file uh, coming to its senses generally and realizing that trying to attack Medicare or Medicaid to have them sunset every five years and have to repass the program just to make a few bucks it would not be something that most Americans would consider uh, palatable, much less rational. It was simply a, a way to, uh, we're going to save money and we'll do it any damn way we have to. And by the way, we don't want to raise the debt ceiling. And, and, and this is a good thing to throw in there. And we, by the way, we have, we, we, we got it. You can't, you can't, uh, you, you, you got to cut spending, but we're not going to give you a way in which we want to do it. All of this stuff. We've been through this on the show. I've talked about this before. The, the Republicans did nothing to improve their position or to give the American people some basis for feeling confident in their capacity to legislate or to govern in any way, shape, or form. I, I mean, I imagine if you are a member or, or, or dedicated to the the base of the party, the, I mean, and base in, on many different levels, but the, the base, 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 base of the party, uh, you may have been screaming along with Marjorie Taylor Greene. Which is fine. That's your right, and is frankly, hopefully, you were doing it in the in the privacy of your home, and and a lot of other people didn't have to watch you screaming along. But but that's not what works with the independents, those people in between the the bookends on both ends, basically, uh, that that are not committed to any one political party, but are looking for some kind of a rational governance process. That that's not how you attract people to do that. You you don't you don't uh, you don't give a notion. You don't you don't set yourself up as being combative and angry and jeering and sneering, knowing the cameras are picking all of this up. The cameras are virtually anticipating that you're going to be clown-like. And, and, and I, I'm I'm sorry uh, I'm sorry Republicans, but that's what it was. It was a clown show. And, and, and as if the clown show itself wasn't bad enough, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who kind of, you know, was, was, was sort of a, not exactly what you call the bastion of, of truth and honesty during her stint as, uh, as press secretary for Donald Trump, but who, by the way, has now become, following in daddy's footsteps, much as Andy Cuomo did, she has become the governor of Arkansas. 
and feels that she, or somehow she convinced the RNC that she could probably give the biggest and the best firebrand response to the Biden speech. I gather this was obviously all prepared well in advance. Clearly, you're not doing these things on the fly. But her her response to Biden's uh, State of the Union address was, was fascinating in that it, it brought back to mind immediately exactly how uh, Bush 43, George W. Bush, managed to pull off a win in the second, his second, well, he pulled off a win largely because he was still operating off of the, off of the title, the, 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 the raised tide from 9-11. That still carried him over the line. But, but what he did was something has, that has become known as swift boating. And I, I, we've talked about this before, and, and last night Sarah Huckabee Sanders gave a textbook uh, demonstration of how it works. What swift boating is, is taking your worst characteristics and speaking of them and applying them to your opponent as though they are not your bad behavior, your worst characteristics, but your opponent's characteristics. Now, there may be absolutely no basis in fact for that, but you simply turn it around. It's, 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 it's a lie. It's, a, it's a, just a bold-faced, glaring lie. But it basically is the type of lie that goes back to, I, I would say, 1936, 38. It's a, it's a, uh, a Goebbels-type lie. It's a social democratic party-type lie that basically, when repeated enough, brings a number of people into the fold. So what Sarah Huckabee Sanders said last night was that the, the Democrats were a, a mob trying to attack America, destroying... She took every image that was applicable to Republicans uh, supporting Trump, to all the Trumpism, to the January 6th images, and completely heaped them onto the Democrats. Just why? Because, well, that's the process of swift boating. You accuse your opponent of being you, of being the worst of you. And, it, and it's, it's, it's transparent, it's obvious, it's, it's, I don't know, is it infuriating? Is that the right word? I suppose it is to some extent. It's annoying. And it, it, it basically left me uh, scratching my head because taken in conjunction with the childish behavior of many of the Republicans in, the, in that State of the Union address last night, it, it, it didn't do anything to mollify or, or moderate my sense of what they done. I, I, I don't know. I, I can't speak for independence. I'm no, I wasn't independent until, until Donald Trump got elected president. That was the first time in my life I actually uh, changed my... Um, I, I, I changed my registration to Democrats full, full flat on. But, but I, she did, it was, it was so obvious that the only people she was appealing to with this completely 
cockamamie, illogical uh, set of attacks that not, did nothing but replicate the attacks that have been, I'm afraid, rightfully directed at many Republicans, many insurrectionist types. Oh, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, oh, it wasn't a bad insurrection. No, an insurrection doesn't mean that you win. An insurrection means that you try. If you'd won, there'd be no one basically to tell the story about this because people, when insurrections win, the insurrectionists shut down all media and you can't tell any story about what they did. That's why insurrection is the attempt the attempt to stop government from functioning the way it is legally allowed to function or should be functioning. When all of that is turned around and said, well, it's really the Democrats who are radical and crazy and attempting to stop government and are, and are burning your money and raising your taxes and, 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 and ruining, and, and all of it, most of it, infinitely defeatable by the most cursory review of facts you, you don't do a lot. But Joe Biden had, had one statement that I, and that this really got the crowd going. I think Marjorie Taylor Greene was yelling liar or something, or, and people were booing him. He said, you know, in the 225 or 30 years that we've had a Congress going, we, you know, we had a different system in the very beginning. Uh, or or, or since, since we've been doing budget work like this, no... The, the single, in, in the course of the, uh, of, of our existence, we have, of course, accumulated national debt. We, we got to a point where we balanced the budget on a few occasions, but we've never gotten rid, rid of the accumulated debt of the nation. Well, that debt was increased. The national debt was increased by 25%. 25% during the one term of Donald Trump. 25% above and beyond all of the accumulated national debt of the country up to that point. Boo! Whoa! No! Say the and, and Joe leans on the podium, looks over and goes, hey, and he, with, the, with the wide open eyes, in, clearly enjoying this, saying, hey, I, I, you, you want to contact my office? I'll, 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 give, I'll give you... I'll give you the facts. They're there. These are facts. And he was and he was watching these people basically have nowhere to go. And when they had nowhere to go, they went to it was they just dove to the bottom and did silly things instantaneously. Um I I I don't know where the Republican Party just did not come out particularly well last night. Um, I, I just, I've never seen a State of the Union address really kind of end up the way it did. But as I said, well, end up uh, in, in the sense of, 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 you know, Sarah Huckabee Sanders basically um, doing a swift boat or attempting a swift boat on the, on the Democrats, having this all planned, having it all set out, and then just ticking off all the boxes as she went to no particular logical end except to basically uh, raise up the basest of the base with more stuff and maybe, I don't know, 
give her some something to campaign off and make some money off of. It, it just, it was a poor performance by the Republicans. It was, it was not, not becoming people who are supposed to be in legislative charge of the Congress of the United States. But, but, but there it is. This, this is what these guys are stuck with at the moment for lack of having real leadership. It, it's the old, you know, the old the lawyer's creed, you know, when you're in the middle of a case and, and the facts are against you, well, you, you, you push the law or you pound the law, as they say. Uh, or, or if you're in the middle of a case and the law is against you, you pound the facts that you have that go against it. And when both the facts and the law are against you, you pound the table. That's what the Republicans did last night. They, they essentially pounded the table for lack of having anything better to say or any better way in which to present their capacity to function as the heads of the, uh, of the House of Representatives to the American people. They just don't have a better way to do it. And, and you know, and, and, and obviously Donald basically is, uh, is a major purveyor of all this. He, he basically uh, is the prince of, <laughs> of calumnies and, and prevarications. We, we know all this. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to take you through this right now. I, I, I just wanted to, uh, to, to basically give you a sense of what people do, what some people can do when confronted with inconvenient truths, just basically turn garish and boorish and angry and yelling and screaming, even when that anger and screaming is directed at the President of the United States, who has all the arguments and you have none at that moment. It doesn't matter. It's just, well, it tells you who you are. And, 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 and by the way, that, that's, that's why I am uh, so pleased to let you know that in just a few minutes, um, we are going to have on a guest this morning's show. Uh, this is a guy who is the, I would have to call uh, Dwight Dacknowitz the antithesis of everything that I just described about and I, I don't know what his political leanings are one way or the other. I, I, I don't want to uh, infer one way or the other. But he is, if you want to hear from a solid guy, uh, this is a guy that you're going to enjoy hearing from. Th this is following in a, um, in a, uh, in a, what we're going to be doing a lot more of here on the show, talking to local people from here in the lower Hudson Valley. And, and getting a sense of what makes them tick and what makes them a part of the lives and the livelihoods of people around here. The interaction between the leaders of the Lower Hudson Valley and the people and how they make life better for all of us. I, I assure you, if you'll stick around after the break, um, learning from and, and, and getting to know uh, Dwight Dacknowitz will basically be a step in the direction of making you feel a lot better about 
people generally and, 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 and what their motivations are, no matter what side of what political spectrum you might be on. Uh, I strongly suggest stay with us for this. Uh, we're going to take a little bit of a break and uh, we'll be back. Um, I think this would be a good time right about now for a little jazz. This is Richard Gazer. You know, it takes lots of time and effort and all kinds of resources to produce the kind of quality program we produce here at Center Left Radio. And it costs money to do it. 
Now, if we screamed a little louder or thought a little less about what we were saying, we could probably get a few advertisers to pay us to sell their products to a more tribally predictable audience. But that's not who we are or who you are. You come to Center Left Radio for non-commercial, thoughtful commentary. You're looking for an honest, progressive approach to solving America's problems, not exacerbating them. And we're committed to providing all of that. We're one of the few stations offering full-time, non-commercial, progressive programming. And we're the only station, the only one, doing it with a combination of hope, politics, and that most eloquent of all original American art forms, jazz. Think of it this way. We support your needs. Now we're asking you to support ours. Take a moment and go to our website, www.centerlefttalkradio, one word, centerlefttalkradio.com, and go to the donate page. And when you get there, give whatever you can on a one-time or maybe a recurring basis, $5, $10, $1,000, whatever you can contribute to make center-left radio's unique progressive voice stronger and even more significant as the full extent of the wrongdoing of Donald Trump and his associates becomes all the more evident. And as we seek to hold the House Democrats accountable for the promises they made to the American people during the last election. Yeah, you know what's at stake. And I know, we all know, we can count on you. On behalf of all of us at Central F Radio, thank you. You're listening to Central F Radio, the progressive voice of hope, politics and jazz and you're listening to us on the web at www.centerlefttalkradio one word centerlefttalkradio.com um if you are a listener to this show if you've listened at any time over the last uh, i guess the six years that we've been doing the show now nearly 800 episodes i think about that and wow but uh, we have, from time to time, had a number of different guests. We've had a number of, of local politicians. Uh, and those have all been rather interesting shows, and I've enjoyed doing them and learning a lot in the course of doing them. Lately, uh, we've begun uh, bringing on just local guys from the area, people uh, who are involved in the business of keeping the area where we are here in, in uh, southern, uh, the southern uh, Hudson Valley, uh, keeping it going and what basically makes it tick. We did a show uh, recently with a guy by the name of Keith Alexander, a friend of mine. And uh, I, I hope you had a chance to listen to it. It's still up online on, the, on our podcast feed. You might, might want to give a listen, but it, it, it got a great response from a number of people. And uh, one thing led to another. And lo and behold, I am about to interview Keith's boss. I'm, I, I'm not sure if this is the way that uh, uh, Dwight Dacknowitz would describe himself. I'm not sure that's the, I'm not sure if that's the way the, uh, he generally thinks of uh, his business positioning, as it were. In fact, if you read his resume, you get the sense that this guy... Um, enjoys being a part of, not necessarily a, 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 uh, an overwhelming controller of, 
the business that he's made into a, an amazing success. Dwight is both the president and CEO of Tarrytown Honda and uh, comes with a rather remarkable story. The, the, the part that impressed me the most, and well, there's been a lot of impressive parts reading about Dwight, but this guy had, uh, was the owner, and I, I want you to think about this. This guy owned, owned a Honda dealership, a major dealership, car dealership, at the age of 35. What were you doing at the age of 35, people? You know, uh, most people are still trying to figure things out at that point. You, you certainly haven't hit your stride. But here's a guy at 35 years of, old, eight years of age who basically hocks the farm, as I understand it, from, from Dwight, and comes out as the head of a Honda dealership. What did that feel like, Dwight? I'm, I'm, I, I've got to ask you, was, was, it, was it like the culmination of a dream? Was it the start of a nightmare? What does it feel like to wake up the next morning and say, I own this thing. It's mine, but it's on my back as well. Well, Richard, morning. And uh, I would say it, it felt like it was do or die. Yeah. You know, we, you know. Here I am at 35, and I think, what, we have to be, we have to be 35 to be president of the United States, yeah, right? Yeah, that's right, so, that's right, yeah. So here I am, just old enough, and I'm carrying all this debt. Uh, my children were literally just born weeks before, and somehow I have to figure out how to make this work. But what I did have going for me is the experience, and I had all... All of these different experiences, whether it was when I was working for Honda Corporate or I was uh, running a large dealership, it, it all culminated. And I really didn't think twice about it. I mean, other than certainly you think about the debt. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, you know, I would think to myself, well, if I genuinely was successful previously, why couldn't I carry it forward? You know, Lower Westchester is a great place to be. Certainly yeah. Honda is an outstanding product. And really, I was the only one keeping myself back, uh, and I had to quickly develop a team. So that was probably one of my biggest struggles there. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I know that right now, from what, I'm, from what I've read, and, and, and I've met a number of people on that team, you, you have, I think the number is it's somewhere around 88 people that you have there right now, but that's a, that's a, a major step up from what the size of the dealership was at the point that you picked it up. Uh, I, I think it's more than doubled. Uh, in, in... Uh, un unfortunately, the day of the closing, there were 14 members on the staff. <laughs> And three wow. were three were family members that the previous owner didn't quite have the heart to tell that uh, this was the uh, the end of the road as he sold the business. Oh my! So, uh, you know, fortunately, we grew, and um, you know, I, I think we discussed briefly that uh, you know, it, not uh, that much later, we encountered 08, which was. Uh, you know, a whole nother experience. But I think by the time 08 rolled around, I was up to about 60 employees. Wow. And wow. Uh, surprisingly, of that original 14, I have four employees that have been with me all 17 years. My goodness. 
What did what did the what did 08 and and those ensuing years do to you in terms of the size of your employee population? Let's say in the in the next two or three years, how did that work out for you? Well, typically in those situations, that's when you would lean down. Like there's a general rule of thumb of like if you're not profitable, you really need to cut your staff by 10% right. until you can reach some sort of like break even or cash flow position. But at that point, as I said, we were roughly around 60 people and we really couldn't get much smaller. It just meant that we all had to wear more hats. Um, I did at one point, I had to sit the employees down and say, you know, we're going to have to scale back you know, whether it was salaries or uh, compensation, you know, while we weather the storm. And yeah. like, they were all willing to go along. And as I said, like the ones that that stayed and grew, it just, you, know, it, it, you may recall there was a program that was called Cash for Clunkers. I so vaguely do, yeah, yeah. What would happen is if your vehicle was inefficient, uh, you would receive a minimum credit. I, I think it was like four thousand or forty-five hundred dollars, and the government. This was brand new. It was initiative to kind of drum up the market, and um, the unfortunate side of it was all of these four thousand dollar credits. They didn't pay out right away. Yeah. So here I am in 08, You know, just hurtled through uh, 06, 07, I get to 08. The market's down, and I believe the total that I was owed was somewhere around three quarters of a million dollars. Owed in terms of, it, owed by whom for what reason? Uh, wait, so explain it, that. The way it worked out was the government reimbursed you yeah. uh, for those trade credits. So effectively, any car, uh, let's say it was a, an Oldsmobile that only achieved 16 miles a gallon and someone traded it in for a Honda Civic, which uh, attained 47 miles to the gallon. Right, right. They received a $4,000 credit. Um, unfortunately, the consumer received the credit, but the vehicle still cost the same. So the dealer, in effect, was out the $4,000 until they were paid by the government. <laughs> oh, my. So brand new program. Um, I believe that... Uh, and And the government kept running out of funds. So in other words, you would put it in, then when they would close the project, then they would then they would open it back up. But in the end, when they finally closed it, it was a little over three quarters of a million dollars. And I'm thinking to myself, why did I do this? There were other dealers that chose like, okay, I'm, I'm just not gonna get involved. It's too complicated. Maybe the government is gonna pay us. But I thought that, you know what, isn't this a great way? I only went into business in 06. Right. Isn't this a great way to cultivate new customers? Uh, I just didn't know that uh, it would cost me. So in the end, in fairness, I did get paid. Um, I do remember, I think I had to take a special loan just to cover uh, that, you know, the, the difference. Um, but it all worked out. And, uh, you know, and then I would argue from that point on, it was almost a blur, I would say, from, you know, 08 on, you know, then we kind of hit our stride. Yeah. And the dealership grew, market share increased. 
but it was uh, it was an interesting time to say the least. I I, I am I am a uh, and I again this isn't this is I, I guess I'm plugging myself as well as plugging you. I have been a Honda buyer uh, or 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 leaser. Now, I think uh, I'm on somewhere around my 8th or 10th or 11th car at this stage in the game. And a uh, substantial number of those coming from you guys. Now, I did deal with your organization. I dealt with you before your ownership stint began. And I, I, I don't want to speak badly of the past and the people in the past, but the difference is was and is bloody night and day and 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 it's amazing you know when people think of car dealerships they don't necessarily think of uh, differentiation there's a rather homogeneous kind of an image that pops into people's minds about what it is to be a car dealership how car salesmen work Etc. Etc. And yet here I am talking to you. After who did I have on previously? I had on Keith, who I think is one of the dearest guys in the world, and whose uh, whose level of honesty and and capability to you know go the full nine yards in any deal situation impressed the daylights out of me. I couldn't believe it. Um, but I'm still confused. Not confused with you, but I'm curious. Here's a guy coming out of college. I know that you, you said in your resume that you were about to pay off, you, you had to pay off some student debt. Okay. How did you choose to go sell cars in order to do that? I, I, that, that, that I'm very interested. How did that set itself up for you? It actually started in literally in boyhood. I would, uh, if there was anything that had a motor, I enjoyed repairing it, rebuilding uh, it, and eventually uh, reselling it. And, and it's funny because I worked for a local garage down the street from my uh, my high school. Yeah. Uh, there was a gentleman by the name of uh, uh, Joe Pinkava, and he had a you know an Exxon service center, and I would walk down after high school and go work there. And one day he had a, it was a Mazda pickup truck, and <laughs> it had some issues with the wiring. So... You know, he bought new spark plug wires, and within, like, minutes, he had figured out what the problem was. Someone had literally just given up on the car. He uh, plugged in new wires, and he said, here, clean it up and sell it. My so goodness. I said, okay. I, I spent an afternoon. I cleaned it up. I put it out on the corner. But I was in charge of whomever would walk in and say, I'm interested in that car. And I sold it within, like, two hours, and I thought... <laughs> What a great, what a great income. And I, and I think he gave me something like, you know, if it was $200, uh, uh, meanwhile, he, he profited significantly on it. But it really taught me a, a life lesson. Yeah. And uh, I stayed with it through uh, high school and college. And in college, I'd work for a, uh, a Honda dealer. And in my opinion, I had done well. I even tried, you know, selling for for a summer, and when I was out, uh, and I graduated, and all of a sudden I'm looking at these student loans. I had been waitlisted for law school, and I thought, you know what? I need to pay these loans back. And what am I good at doing? Uh, I felt I was good at selling 
uh, and servicing Hondas. It was so it was a it I, was a logical life experience based decision, I would say. Yes. <laughs> wow. I I so you're a guy who basically could walk over to the to this beautiful new service facility that Tarrytown Honda has. Well, it's not brand new anymore, but since like, when did it first open in 1920? When did when did your service facility, the new one? Uh. 2018. 18. Okay. Uh, is when we finished up on the, on that building. I, I get the sense that you could probably walk over there, and uh, roll up your sleeves and get involved in uh, in in probably most repair situations. I I I I don't know if I'm overstating that, but I'm I'm also just I'm also uh, my sense is that there probably aren't a lot of owners in the car dealership business who come from the literally the nuts, bolts, and wiring end of the business all the way up to ownership, or am I wrong? Are there many people like that? I guess maybe you could speak for Honda. I'm, I'm just curious. Are you, are you uh, unique? You know, it, in my time at Honda, let's say there's a little over 1,000 Honda dealers and a little over 400 Acura dealers. Yeah. There's a handful of dealers that, you know, come from more of like what you would call like a fixed uh, service background. Yeah. But what I think it does is it really gives you a sense of what the vehicles are about and really what it entails to maintain those vehicles. And even like from the customer side, you know, either the frustration or the satisfaction that a customer gets from knowing that their vehicle is taken care of. Yeah. Which that... is part of the reason... You know, when we talked about the building and um, I had the opportunity to pick up the diner property and build it, uh, a lot of dealers would probably look at it and like, you know what, let me take care of the sales building first because that's what's first and foremost. And we'll worry about service later. Sometimes dealers put the service facility in a, like a, a more affordable location. Like to me... If I, if I have a customer that's coming in and I have them satisfied in service, yeah, why wouldn't they come back and yeah. buy from me? Yeah. So again, like when the diner opportunity came available, it was like, okay, you know, it's a little unorthodox to build service before you build sales, but to me, it made sense. Well, and like let, if I take, go ahead. I, well, no, I, I just wanted I just wanted to clarify for our listeners basically what the what what we're talking about here. We say a diner opportunity directly across the street from what is now Tarrytown Honda was a diner, a large diner that had been there forever and ever. And 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 Dwight, when you ultimately went and purchased that out, was that like was that the second was that the fallback position? It, would everything have otherwise been built into the facility where your sales are right now? Would, would you have had? Uh, yes. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, in in 08, I had uh, worked with a village, uh, received an approval for a 70,000 square foot building. Yeah. Uh, but it, if you can imagine, I think that piece of property is, is about two acres. Yeah. It literally was sardined in uh, on that piece of property. I did have um, some difficulties with some of the uh, adjacent neighbors that thought that it would be, again, just too much ac activity on such a small piece of property. Yeah, yeah. So I was looking elsewhere. Um, and then when the diner became available, to me, it was like a perfect 
opportunity. Um, downside would be, you know, you come from all this debt and you finally get things paid off and you yeah. think to yourself, yeah. what, what am I doing? <laughs> you know, I should find a more affordable piece of property, yeah, yeah. you know, build a small building. But uh, fundamentally, that's not what got me this far. Well, so. I, I, I must say uh, that, that uh, and, I, and, I, and I say this again to our listeners, uh, Dwight's situation with the zoning board that he came up against was, was something of a cause celeb locally here in the area. And the fact that he stuck it out and got through it is something that I and I think a number of other people were, I, do I want to use the word amazed at? I'm more amazed at, at just your, your stick-to-itiveness about the entire project because you were getting an awful lot of pushback and the end, damn it, uh, you, you pulled it off and you, you pulled it off uh, very elegantly. The new facility is, is wonderful and, and it works exactly the way it's supposed to. And I'd like to, and the more I'm talking to you, the more I'm realizing that it's uh, very much a reflection of uh, your, your perspective on how things are supposed to work. And, 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 and that, Let's see, I'm, 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 leading, I'm leading myself into thoughts over here, uh, which I'm not unknown for. Uh, you basically uh, mentioned in some biomaterial that you'd passed over to me recently that one of the things that you find difficult about the industry right now, and clearly we could talk about COVID and having come through that and, and, and where that left you, but this tendency of uh, large, large purchasing groups, or perhaps uh, you know, a, a, a capital fund of some sort, some venture funds, to essentially begin acquiring automobile dealerships, and how so many have been pulled into these arrangements. And you would seem to be the antithesis of that. I, I, I would wonder, had you ever been approached at this? Was it a temptation? And I'm thinking, I'm thinking of the, of the, from, the, from the 90s and the early 2000s when all of these venture capital groups were buying out medical practices and building up the huge medical facilities that we have and the medical groups that we have out there right now. I, I see something of an analogy in the car industry. Dwight, how did you get through the, uh, the vultures who might have been circling uh, Tarrytown Honda at that point? Well, Richard, it, it is like it's prevalent uh, all over the automotive industry. In particular, you know, if you take franchises that are top tier. So by that I mean if they're a Honda, they're a Toyota, they're a Lexus. Sure. Uh, it's almost like a, a can't lose proposition for these large auto groups. Uh, but to me, you know, the the personal side of it, and and I'm vested. And when I say I'm vested, it's like, how did I make it? in 06 when I really, I shouldn't have. I mean, I, I barely had enough money. I hit, I just barely hit all the minimums. Uh, I made it because the customer stuck by me. I made it because you know, the original 14 employees gave me 150% and they grew into 60, grew into 80, uh, to 88 employees. So when you think about, you know, the, uh, the parachute of being bought out by a large corporation, what would that what would that do? What would it do? Like the first thing they would probably do is analyze your employee base and say, oh, you know, we can make cuts here. 
Um, and these are people that stuck by me. Yeah. Uh, so it, it, it really, it, it, to, to me, it's the opposite of what I stand for. So I come, to, you know, I come to work every day. I'm genuinely concerned about my customers and employees. And not to say that like large corporations don't have good intentions, but they certainly don't know the ins and outs of their employees, their customers. You know, maybe there's a customer that's in a bad way and they need a little bit of help for the next six months and you pay some special attention to them or, you know, you make an extra call to the bank to make sure that um, the car that they need to take the kids to work or for their job that they can hold on to that. Like, no no corporation in the world is, I mean, you can't blame them because they're at such a high level, but yeah, you know, yeah. to me that like, that's what's really driven the engine for so long. Why would I walk away from it? I mean, you know, I do have children and they're uh, two boys and they're 16 years old. Who knows? I mean, maybe one day they're going to look at it as, you know, I have an opportunity to carry this on, but you know, until then I'm going to put my best foot forward every day and keep the interest of my employees and my customers far above what any large corporation has to offer. I, I'm, I'm beginning to realize something that, uh, that something is making a lot of sense about a recent set of experiences that I went through, uh, with your deal. Well, two things I should say, first of all, uh, I've only, I, you and I did not meet until a few days ago and when, when we, we set this up and I was very happy to have the opportunity. But the reason we're setting it up is because a lot of your employees, several of them, not just, not just Keith, but several employees said, you know, I think it'd be great if you did, you did Keith, why don't you do Dwight? And, and, and this, is, this is something that one would not expect to hear in a lot of corp. Hey, would you do a radio show with my boss? Now, I don't know. Someone might cynically say, well, just currying favor. But it was something that I heard from two or three different people on your staff. And it was like, geez, that's different. That's something I didn't expect. And that's part of what I, my thought on that. The other part is I'm beginning to understand the mindset of the people as very much a reflection of where you're coming from in the way I was dealt with, with an issue that I had recently concerning the title of a car. I, I had purchased a car off lease from you guys, and there was a, a little bit of a mix-up uh, because of uh, how, uh, the, uh, how dollar figures were expressed on a form that came from a Honda-related company, and it all had to be worked out, and there was a problem with the lender on my end, and, there was, and in the end, you guys picked up the ball, and from what I've learned in talking to some other people, did stuff that normally would not be done by a deal. Tarrytown Honda really stepped up. Uh, I, I, have to, I have to do a, another a shameless plug of, of Charlene Mooney over here and just mention uh, that she basically stepped up and did one hell of a job in, in resolving an issue. And I'm beginning to figure out uh, where that sense comes from. I, I guess, where else does it come from? And you, I know your dad was in the Navy. And I know that, that you are very much involved with the Catholic Church, and I know that you're a, uh, you're a marathoner, or 
half marathon or whatever you're doing. Uh, you mentioned a few minutes ago that uh, you were either on your way to or on your way back from the gym this morning. H how does all of that, and I guess largely, I guess I would like to focus on the notion of your, your dad and your faith. H how does that play into uh, who you are and how you deal in your business life? I would say, uh, unquestionably, my faith has been a huge factor in, I don't want to say in my success, yeah. I would say in my overall determination. Ah. So, uh, my, uh, my mother taught us from an early age that, you know, to, to believe in her faith, to carry it forward, and to demonstrate your faith. Uh, and by that, I mean, like, being decent day in, day out. And, and I, I understand the reputation that car dealers carry. But, like, if you can be a car dealer and exercise decency and, like, a sense of humanity um, that you get from your faith, it, it will carry you forward. You know, so, you know so, uh, oftentimes people that are outside of the business, they'll say, you know, is it good money? Do you, you know, do you make good money as a car dealer? And I've never had that attitude of like, I'm in it for the dollars. I always felt that like, if I demonstrated good faith, if I took care of the customer, the income will be there. Yeah. And more importantly, it'll be there for all the other employees as well. Uh, as, as far as my father, I think, you know, his his upbringing, you know, growing up, uh, you know, son of Polish immigrants, you know, there in the Bronx. Yeah. And we yeah. just talked about the marathon. I mean, you know, uh, you start the marathon, you're in Staten Island, you run into Brooklyn. You know, my mother's, she's a Flatbush girl. So, ah. uh, you know, it brings back, you know, remember, like, what was it like for them? Like, they're the ones that helped put us on the map. Um, you know, you know, my my dad finishes up in the Navy and decides that, uh, you know, he wants to carry forward, stay in the area. He was in Norfolk, so he went to Georgetown for, for law school. What if they didn't do that? What, like, that's what helped put me on the map and established at a very young age, like, the, the discipline and, you know, the genuine morals and ideals that, you know, I've carried. I'm 51 years old, and I think about that often, you know, what tremendous opportunity they have given me and and again like i think the the faith part was a major factor there, there there have been there have been too many situations of late where faith generally in america has just been added to the heap of things that people can use to divide and differentiate themselves where it's just another uh, another form of sectarianism that basically puts me against you uh, what I'm hearing from you about how your faith motivates you is basically the type of thing that one would hope to hear that religion and faith are able to generate in, in most people, but uh, regrettably you don't hear it that much. And again, you, you, the, the notion of talking about faith uh, as a function of a business, uh, in, in, as, as, a, as, a, as a foundation for business attitudes. Uh, that is something you just rarely, rarely hear, and it is uh, damned refreshing uh, to hear faith 
in the context that one would hope to hear it, or we, I would hope it would have been all along. We're just not there right now. So uh, uh, glad to hear that somebody is still keeping the faith, as it were, and certainly keeping it in the way it should have been. One, one other thought. And, and, I, and I, yeah, I, I had a note to myself on this because you went out of your way to talk about this guy. Tell me about Bill Vince. Uh, you know, I, I think, so I, I'm an English major and political science, but in, I think there's a literary character and it's called, uh, is it the Deus Ex Machina? Am I De mispronouncing De it? Deus Ex so Machina, it, yeah. We're, we're so God, yeah. It's yeah. this... You're reading, you're reading a book and someone's up against a wall and like out of nowhere comes this character, just saves the deck. The solution. The, right? the solution yes. comes yes. from a machine out of the sky. Deus ex machina. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, here I am, you know, I'm working for Honda Corporate. You know, I had worked retail and this, when I say this character, Bill Vince, who'd been one of the very first Honda dealers, he had just, I, I don't want to say he was stalking me, but he vigorously pursued me to try and get me to leave Honda Corporate and come work for him. And uh. I thought, you know what, I have, a, I have a nice deal here. You know, I had moved from New Jersey to South Carolina back to New Jersey. And, you know, with every promotion came a little bit of a pay bump. And uh, Bill Vince said, you know, you're going to come work for me. Said I'm, you know, I'm going to give you one of my stores like it was your own, and you're going to get the best education uh, ever from me. And I was seriously doubtful. And uh, then he said, "And I know you're going to have to move to California because that's the natural order of things at uh, in Honda Corporate." And I thought, "How does he know?" <laughs> so sure enough, you know, he uh, we got together and. Uh, I did leave Honda Corporate, and he put me in charge of uh, one of his stores in New Jersey and basically said, I want you to treat it like it's your own. You know, you can come to me for advice, but, you know, here are the keys. I, I want you to succeed, and I'll be with you every step of the way. So at the time, he was probably 80 or late wow. 70s. Wow, 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 and, wow. Um, wow. He, like, again, every step of the way, whether it was, you know, we talked about building a building. I remember, you know, I was at a planning board meeting and we were trying to build a building and I called him. It was 11 o'clock at night. And I said, you know, Mr. Vince, I'm sorry I failed you, but I couldn't get the approval. And he said, wait, that's the best experience you'll ever have. He said, you're <laughs> going to go through this a hundred times in your lifetime. So I've been keeping track, Richard, and I think I probably have another 40 more meetings before I get to a hundred, but he was <laughs> spot on because, you know, he gave me such, uh, such an education. And even when in 06, when I had the opportunity to buy my own store, he sat me down, you know, most dealers, they'd feel threatened, you know, I'm taking money away from them. Yeah. Um, he said to me, he said, if you don't take this opportunity, you're going to regret it the rest of your life. He said, I'll be with you uh, 100% every step of the way, uh, but you need to do it on your own, and I have faith in you. And um, I did, and uh, unfortunately, he passed in uh, 2021, but even... When we got into COVID, you know, I called him up and I said, 
I'm not sure I can go through all of this again. You know, I went through 06, I went through 08, I went through construction, and here we are again, like I have this hurdle and I need to get through it. And he said, I, I don't understand it. He said, all along, you've been able to battle all these obstacles and you think COVID is something different? It's just another obstacle. <laughs> and he actually, he asked me, he said, what do you have in the bank? Personally, what do you have in the bank? Yeah, yeah. And I told him, like, he was that type of person. He said, I want you to take half of your life savings and I want you to put it back in the dealership to make sure it's capitalized. You know, long before there was any announcement of PPP, which was a sure. government assistance, yeah. he said, that way you know that the business is sound, your employees, your accounting department knows that it's sound no matter what. And you know what? He was 100% right. I mean, it turns out that we... We did get PPP, but like if we didn't have that solid, you know, uh, cash in the bank to move forward, and we did. I think my first quarter, I'm not embarrassed to say it, I lost three quarters of a million dollars in one quarter, wow. unheard of. But you know, obviously it rallied. We never closed. Uh, many dealers did close. We stayed open. Yeah. And you know, the business certainly came back. I mean, service is stronger than it's ever been. Uh, I'd like to think that some of the employees that knew that we stayed open and we took care of them, uh, when I say they're lifers, their their devotion is uh, 150%. Yeah. So, you know, it definitely came back to me. So You, you are, um, you, you strike me as a guy who has had guiding hands sort of, uh, over you uh, in, in, at, at many different levels of spirituality and, and practicality. And uh, you're also completely turning on its head my prior notions of car dealership owners. Uh, that's, that's a delightful thing to be corrected about. And as I say, it, it explains to me why your dealership has done as well as it does, why the people that I've dealt with there are basically as solid as they seem to be, and how you've gotten through all this. And I'm, uh, I'm only sorry I didn't get to know you a little sooner, and hopefully that, uh, that has been corrected. Uh, Dwight, it's been, a, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. And uh, I, uh, if, if anyone is in the area and wants to uh, do anything about having a, a hell of a good car, the, the product is obviously there, Honda. That I can, mm -hmm. I can, I can, I can, I could preach about Hondas forever. Uh, but uh, if you're anywhere in the area, and it's not hard to get to Tarrytown Honda, my God, you're, you're right there at the crossroads. You're right where, uh, uh, where Broadway picks up on Route 287, on Route 87. It's a, it's a magnificent location. You can't go wrong with that. But you'll, you'll get to understand, maybe, uh, why I uh, am not only a fan of Honda, but I gather uh, probably a now very long-term fan of Tarrytown Honda and uh, very pleased to have finally uh, had a chance to chat with my guest, Dwight Dachnowitz, and, and uh, I hope we have a chance to do this again. Dwight, uh, thank you so much for being with Center Left Radio. 
Richard, thank you. Thank you for sharing your morning. Okay, and thank and, and and thank. If, and if I interrupted your uh, your your exercise schedule, I apologize. But I I have no doubt that you'll uh, you'll 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 deal with that in the way that you deal with everything else. <laughs> Okay. No thank you. Okay, and uh, with and as we usually do at the end of segments like this, and I'm I'm just going to do exactly what we always do. Think about it, enjoy it, and uh, just savor the conversation with a little jazz.
You've been listening to Center Left Radio, the progressive voice of hope, politics, and jazz. My name is Richard Gazer, and thank you once again for being part of today's show. It's it's so typical, it's so easy to categorize people by uh, some affiliation that they have, by some position that they're associated with, and to ignore uh, who they might be as a person. The only way out of where we are right now as a nation, and in so many other ways, is to deal with people one-on-one. Listen to my interview with Dwight Dacknowitz from this morning. It'll lift your spirits. 